I agree with George Mueller. George Mueller wrote this. The first great and primary business to which I ought to attend every day is to have my soul happy in the Lord. The first great and primary business to which I ought to attend every day is to have my soul happy in the Lord. But as Psalm 31 says, life can be full of sorrows and sighings. Happy in God can come off as uh, a little bit trite or uh, a little bit shallow. Look at that last verse again. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. Whatever this psalm is getting at, it's pointing us toward this, this goal of inner strength, courage, that when life is hard, that's where we would go. Do you know who uh, Eeyore is? Everybody knows Eeyore. Eeyore is brilliant in my mind because Eeyore is never happy. It doesn't matter what happens. Eeyore has the spiritual gift of finding something wrong with everything. Even, even, and he's so sarcastic, right? When the little friends come running by and they, they bowl him over, and you remember what he says? Thanks for noticing. It's just, it's just like whatever. It, it, that is Eeyore. Everything is always wrong with Eeyore. Are, are you an Eeyore kind of Christian? The kind of Christian that's able to find a dark cloud with whenever you see a silver lining? I don't know how, I don't know how you do that. Let's, uh, here, here's a good test you could take. How'd you do during COVID? I mean, assuming it's over. <laughs> but, but how did you do as a person? I mean, we went through in those two years all kinds of things we never had to go through before. But I think if you reflect on those two years and say, you know what grew in me is I became more angry, more discouraged, more anxious, more depressed, less happy, less rejoicing, not delighting in God. That was maybe a really good spiritual lesson for you. Because I don't think COVID caused that. If that was you, then here all the more is a psalm for you, a psalm to teach you and to help you, because this psalm is telling us how to be happy in God when life is difficult, how to be happy in God when life stinks, frankly, and sometimes it does, how to not be an Eeyore Christian. Now, notice how the psalm begins with the inscription there. That's something written by David. It says, to the choir master, a psalm of David. And by dedicating this psalm to the choir master, he's intending that these words will be sung. They'll be sung in the corporate worship of God like we have done here this morning. That's important to notice in case you be, you're one of these people who thinks that all, all that should really be sung in churches is self-affirming, petty peppy stadium rock trite stuff. Like, I want to go to church to get my high. Here's a song written for us by David, by the Lord, that includes lament, pleading, deep sorrow, and delight. Which is just one of the reasons it's good to sing the psalm book that God has given us, the 150 psalms that God has given us. So we're going to tackle this morning, how do you delight in God 
when you're getting squeezed by the troubles of life. And I'll give you five ways to delight in him. The first is this, declare it. Declare your delight. It's interesting, this is how David begins. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. Now, there's a lot to notice in these first two verses, but I just want to begin with three words. Refuge, fortress, and rock. That word refuge, when he uses it there in verse 1, in you, O Lord, do I take refuge... This kind of refuge is the place you would run to hide to get away from trouble, to find shelter. So think about you're on a summer picnic and there's a a sudden cloud burst. It's ruining the picnic. You gather everything up. Where do you run? You run to the little pavilion to hide from the rain. That's the kind of shelter he's talking about here. In you, O Lord, do I take shelter? Do I take refuge? And the last line of verse 2, he says, be a strong fortress to me. And when he calls God a fortress, he's speaking about that protected high ground. Well, you probably, there's a few kids here. You play this game, I'm sure. I'm the king of the castle. You're the dirty. Well, apparently it's only those of us who are like 50 and older that know that rhyme. Yeah, sorry. Well, this is a great game you can play, kids. Because what you do is you see a hill anywhere, and you climb on the top, and you, you say, I'm the, dirty, I'm the king of the castle. You're the dirty rascal. And that's a challenge to get somebody to knock you off the hill. Trust me, it's a lot of fun. Anyway, <laughs> when he says here, uh, this idea of a fortress, that's, that's what he's thinking about. The high ground, the place that, that you're safe from your enemies. And then he calls God a rock, be a rock of refuge for me. And David is not comparing God to a stone, uh, but rock here is a, is a more technical term. It's actually something like a cleft in the rock, a crag, a place you would slip into and hide. So you might think here of something like Masada, that that giant fortress in Israel, where, where the nation could retreat. It was up high, it was walled, it had one tiny entrance, it was difficult to get to, it was a place of protection. It's a high tower, it's a fortress, it's a refuge. Now, David says to the Lord, you sort of be these things to me. And he's asking the Lord to do that because look at what he says in verse 3. For you are my rock and my fortress. And for your name's sake, you lead me and guide me. You take me out of the net they've hidden for me, for you are my refuge. Now, I'm pointing that out to you in case you've ever been hiking, which is also known as misery. I was a Boy Scout, and you had to, you just did really odd things to get a little badge that you had to sew on a sash. We wore sashes. Anyway, uh, yeah, and one, so they convinced us that we need to go on a hike. And it's, you know, it's not just a hike. You have to carry a 50-pound backpack. We're like little eighth-grade boys with 50 pounds on our back going on this 30-kilometer hike. And one other of the little scouts has to earn another badge to be the leader. So he's leading us. And, of course, he gets us lost. We're, we have a, it's now a 30-kilometer hike. It's a 40-kilometer hike. And it rained the whole time. I'm not making this up. This is, this is terrible. So we're soaked. We're cold. This late fall, autumn hike, it's just brutal. And I remember when we finally got to the end point where all the parents are waiting, wondering where are they, and I see my dad in the golden brown station wagon, I'm that old, and, uh, and I take my orange backpack and I throw it in the back and I climb into the front seat and I said, Dad, please turn on the heat. And he just cranks the heat. 
<laughs> for the first time in days, I am dry, or getting dry, but I'm, I'm getting warm, and I am happy. That station wagon was my refuge. Are you happy in your refuge? Let me ask you, is, is a stronghold, a fortress, a, a good place to be when the enemy attacks? You bet it is. And by telling God that God is his refuge, David's making a statement not just about protection, but about pleasure. He's saying to the Lord, you are my delight, Lord. You are my safety. You are my security. But more than this, David is saying, you, Lord, you, you are where I want to be. I want to be found in you. I want to be with you, which is why the psalm is going to end the way it does. People that delight in God like this, they know how to pray the truth. I listen to John's sermons because he's my son-in-law, and I think he, he, he said some of this in his last sermon about leveraging the truth. And, and that's exactly what, uh, what David is doing here in this particular psalm. I think this is the best way to pray. Leverage revelation. And we'll, we'll see this again in point four, but I want to point it out to you here. Look at what David is doing. God has revealed to David things about himself, and David is praying those things back to God. So David, in his crisis, in his trouble, is saying to the Lord, you told me you were my refuge, so be my refuge. You told me that you were my fortress, so be my fortress. You told me that you were my deliverer, so be my deliverer. Christians who are delighting in God have no problem praying that way. I would argue that God himself in, rejoices when we pray that way because we're taking him at his word. In other words, we're just exercising faith. Faith is acting like what God says is true. That's my definition. It's acting like what God has said is true. And we're choosing to believe that what God has told us about himself is accurate. It's reliable. We're choosing to delight in him. We're choosing to treasure him above everything else. As Newton wrote, you are coming, thou art coming to a king, large petitions with thee bring. For his, his grace and power are such, none can ever ask too much. So with all of this soaring confidence in the first couple of verses here, David then exclaims in verse 5, Into your hand I commit my spirit, you have redeemed me, O Yahweh, faithful God. David has been redeemed by God. Therefore, God is not going to let him be destroyed. He commits, David does, his entire self to the mighty hand of his rock, his fortress, his stronghold, to God himself. Later on in verse 15, he will say, My times are in your hand. David is absolutely certain that he is immortal until the Lord decides to take him home. Look, when you leverage revelation, you can pray with imperatives. Are you an imperative praying Christian or a just praying Christian? I'm going to step on some toes. <laughs> I've just noticed sometimes that just when we're talking to God in prayer, just we just say just a lot, and I just don't know just why. Because <laughs> I think if one of my kids was feeling not so confident in me when they were little, they might come to me and say, 
Dad, could you just maybe just like just give me, you know, uh, some some money so I could just go to the store? But I think if they had soaring confidence in my reliability and my generosity, they might come and say, Dad, give me the money you promised me for the store. (laughs) No just. And I think when you come before the Lord, you don't need to come groveling in that sense. You need to come second-guessing your prayers. If it's in the book, friend, pray it. Pray it with imperatives. Look at what David says here. Deliver me. Incline your ear. Be my rock. Save me. Lead me. Guide me. Take me out of the trap of my enemies. Don't let me be put to shame. There's no justs in there. Are you an imperative praying Christian? If you're not, it might be because your delight in God has been clouded and disrupted by your circumstances. We're always being tempted toward idolatry, aren't we? What's an idol? An idol is anything that replaces your affection for the real God. All we know so far in this psalm is that David has enemies who have set a trap for him. Now, he's faced traps all through the poor guy's life. We'll see more about that in a moment. But here, notice what David does when he hears of this latest attempt to get him to fail. He leans into God. This is point number two. Affirm your allegiance. So he's declared his delight. Now he affirms his allegiance. Verse six. I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. David learned through the years that all idolatry was folly. Worthless idols, that phrase can be translated something like vain breaths. That which is insubstantial, meaningless, a mere vapor, appearing like something when it is nothing. You know, like your phone. Do you bow down to it? Does it control you? Bing! (laughs) Do you give it your money? A phone can be an idol if we're not careful. But you cannot find your soul's happiness in a phone. It is a worthless idol. It's a vain breath. David seeks his delight in God alone. Verse 6, I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love because you have seen my affliction. You have known the distress of my soul and you have not delivered me into the hand of of the enemy. You have set my feet in a broad place. So the man who is saying that he chooses to rejoice and be glad is the same man who finds his life getting kind of strangled by his afflictions. David uses words here that make, make us feel like if you've seen the movie where the hallway, you run down the hallway and the walls of the hallway are closing in on you. That's the kind of Hebrew language that he's using here that's translated for us as affliction and distress. And if you've got an enemy at work or worse, at home, so that every time you see them, you, your stomach 
tenses, your teeth clench, you're getting crushed by that oppressor. David says when this happens to him, he is happy. Verse 7, I will rejoice and be glad. How are you doing that, David? Why are you doing that? Um, Because God has seen me. God knows my troubles. How did God know, David? Well, he's sovereign, obviously. He knows, yes. But I think David is saying, God knows because I have told him. I believe he hears my prayers. Do you believe God listens to your prayers? Do you? David, David is saying, look, I, I've told you all about my troubles and my trials, and, and you picked my soul out of the crushing weight of it all, and you've set me into this wide open field, a broad place. That's the vocabulary of answered prayer. Paul and Silas sang hymns of praise to God in prison. Joseph trusted in God in the pit. A man can be in the worst of straits and be full of joy because his delight is not dependent on his outward circumstances, but his inward connection to God. This man, David, has gotten his soul happy in the Lord. You know, God might be bringing circumstances into your life to help you taste and see that he's good. So that you can learn to rejoice and be glad in his steadfast love. How will he show you that it is steadfast unless it is tested. David's circumstances provided the soil in which to grow his delight in God. His life is very hard. It's probably harder than yours. It's definitely harder than mine. And yet this man rejoices. It's not a fake joy. It's not cheesy, manufactured, here on Sunday, Christian, ha, joy. It's real joy. And that means you've also, number three, got to lament your losses. Verse nine, be gracious to me, O Lord, for I'm in distress. My eye is wasted from grief, my soul and my body also, for my life is spent with sorrow. Spent meaning, uh, you know, eaten up, evaporated, done. My years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. This is interesting. I mean, in the same song, the guy rejoices and laments. You might wonder how those two things can go together. That probably means you're young (laughs) because just live long enough, friend, and you will see as a Christian that life is full of its troubles and trials. You know, one of the things that's interesting about lament as a form of speech is that it's directed to God. It's not moaning at the stars or grumbling at your neighbor's lament is a formal expression of grief to the one person who's able to do something about it. This isn't one of the inscripted psalms that says, here are the circumstances that were going on in David's life when, I, when he wrote this. <laughs> but that's fine. Psalms more general because most of David's life was like this. The guy who killed Goliath, Right? Men spent eight years on the run being falsely accused by Saul, his father-in-law. John, watch out. Uh, <laughs> his, his own son, Absalom, tries to usurp the throne. I mean, David's life from beginning to end was full of troubles and trials. 
And so he acknowledges his own sins in the middle of, his own, of these sufferings that are coming from outside. I don't know about you. I can really relate to verse 10. My life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. David was a realist. Even though he was delighting in God, his life was nothing short of 70 years of sorrows and sighings. And I think were it not for the grace of God, we would all sink under the weight of our own guilt, our own unrighteousness. And added to that burden is all the grief we get from other people. Verse 11, because of all my adversaries, I've become a reproach, especially to my neighbors and an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street flee from me. That's a great feeling. I have been forgotten like one who is dead. I've become like a broken vessel, for I hear the whispering of many, terror on every side as they scheme together against me as they plot to take my life. It's, I think if David was writing today, he would say something like, if life wasn't hard enough, Satan invented Facebook. The whisperings of many. <laughs> David sees the writing on the wall. He knows what people are whispering behind his back. They're plotting to get him out of the way. They're plotting to usurp him off, his, off of his throne. You ever read these stories of, you know, famous uh, leaders, general, war generals, whatever. I like stories of leaders, but I'm always puzzled by these guys. You know, I knew that my enemy was going to do this, so I did that, and blah, 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 me, me, me. I'm, I'm always thinking like, really? Or did you just guess? Because my whole life, I feel like I'm guessing. I don't really know what to do. Does anybody really know what to do? I'm, maybe you all know what to do, and I'm the only person who doesn't know what to do. Show of hands, does anyone here know what to do? Okay, me and Judah. I don't understand that. I can't relate with that. I want to stand here with David because I think David leads this very, very simple life, a life which deals with the plain truth of what's happening right in front of him. And when you live that way, you can both lament and rejoice and pray, which is where he goes next. Number four, leverage is lost. So declare your delight, affirm your allegiance, lament your losses, and then leverages law. This is the variation on the theme we saw earlier, verse 14. But I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. That, my friends, is a lovely prayer. You are my God. You're my God. Not Molech, not Baal, not my phone, not Buddha. My times are in your hand, not my hand. So rescue me, rescuer. Have you ever prayed God's word like that? Here's David rev, le, leveraging revelation again. What revelation? When God brought his people out of Israel and set up the priesthood, he said, now, Aaron, the priest, you're going to bless my people. Here's what you are going to say. The Lord bless you and keep you. You know what comes next? The Lord make his face shine upon you. Look at verse 16. Make your face shine on your servant and save me in your steadfast love. Benedictions are not spells we cast on Christians to send them out for another week hoping they'll survive. They're, they're prayers that God wrote for us to speak to one another in order to increase our confidence in him. God wrote number six. God gave it to Israel. 
It's revelation. It's very kind of him, isn't it? And David takes the words of number 625 and he asks God to come through on the promise. He says, look, I've been going to temple for years and every time I'm there, the priest says to me, the Lord make his face shine upon you. I've heard that over and over and over again. So verse 16, make your face shine on your servant. And then he leverages God's character. You're the one who said that the wicked would not prosper. Well, it's wicked men who are attacking me. Deal with them, Lord. Keep your promises. Verse 17. Oh, Lord, let me not be put to shame, for I call upon you. Let the wicked be put to shame. Let them go silently to Sheol. Let the lying lips be mute, which speak insolently against the righteous in pride and contempt. David knows who he is, and he knows the promises that God has made to him, and that is vital to see. Those promises were not yet fulfilled. He's not yet sitting at ease on his throne with peace all around him, and yet that's what the Lord had promised him. So David pleads with God to deal with the, with the wicked, the liars, the insolent, the proud, and the contemptuous, and he's absolutely confident God will. And he's sure of this because he is a man who has chosen to find his happiness in God himself, but not, not to try to do it alone. And here's the part we need the most, the crescendo of the song. Number five, fortify your friends. This man, David, with so many enemies, who's getting squeezed on every side by whispering traitors, this man who has to endure lies and affliction and trouble. This man, this man has the audacity to look us in the eye and say, delight in God, brother. Delight in God, sister. Delight in the Lord is never a solo project. It is to be done in community. God gives us one another in order to help us encourage each other to continue on delighting in God, our Savior. Your job as a member of this church is to help every other member of this church treasure God above all else. There you go. If you live another 50 years and you do that faithfully, well done good and faithful servant. It's like David is turning to us at the end of this psalm and he goes, look, here's three things you need to be telling each other all the time. Number one, turn to your brother, turn to your sister, tell him, tell her, he will be with you. He will be with you. This is verse 19. Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up Remember that word. For those who fear you and work for those who take refuge in you in the sight of the children of mankind. In the cover of your presence, you hide them from the plots of men. You store them in your shelter from the strife of tongues. So David, at this point in the psalm, he moves from talking about his experience to our experience. He's speaking about all who delight in God, all those who take refuge in him. God does these things for all of them. And the first thing God does is he stores up goodness for them. Look at verse 19. Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you. 
be fine enough if, if all God did was store up all the goodness and have it waiting for us when we finally cross the finish line. But David says that the Lord also works or displays or causes to be seen this goodness in the sight of all. That means now, in this lifetime, in real time, God is letting it be seen, his goodness for his people. And the way God does this is by answering the, the prayer that began this psalm back in verse 2. Incline your ear to me, rescue me speedily, be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. I, I, I just note the word store there, verse 19, the second line, which you've, you've stored up goodness for those who fear you. And you drop down to the end of verse 20, you store them in your shelter. He stores up goodness, in a sense, by storing us up in his shelter. In other words, I think what David is saying here is that the good, ultimate good that God gives is himself. God hides them in his presence. God tucks them away in his impregnable shelter. God cuts off all the plots and whisperings of others and gives them himself. Please notice, this is not a promise from God to spare you from your trials. It's a promise to be given God in the midst of your trials. In one of my greatest trials, I found it a, a constant battle to come to the Lord with my worries, my anxieties, my concerns. I was so worried about messing up. I was so worried about the plots and lies of others against me. Like never before in my life, I had to keep going back to the Lord, back to the Lord, back to the Lord. And you know what I found? Every time I went, he calmed my heart. He was my refuge. He gave me himself. First thing we want to say to each, to each brother, to each sister, he will be with you. Second thing we want to tell them, he loves you. He loves you. Verse 21, blessed be the Lord, for he's wondrously shown his steadfast love to me when I was in a besieged city. See, it's getting, you know, ramparts built against it to be destroyed. That time, when all the attacks were coming, we're starving inside. Like, that's the time. Bless me, the Lord. He's wondrously shown his chesed, his steadfast love to me when I was in the besieged city. I said in my alarm, I'm cut off from your sight. But you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. What kinds of things have you said in your alarm? We all say things in our alarm that are over the top and false, don't we? Maybe we think them. You ever been so pressed and distressed by your trials and your difficulties that you've started to think, God has forgotten about me. He's forgotten about me. You ever looked to the heavens, just said, where are you? I, I'm not even sure you exist. This is what David's admitting. My alarm, 
this is what I said. Things got so hard, I actually thought the Lord had cut me off. I said in my alarm, I am cut off from your sight. This is what David felt, but it was not what was true. Your feelings are not trustworthy. Your Bible is. One of our elders was teaching on a Sunday night and said, a wise person interprets their circumstances by God's character. They never interpret God's character by their circumstances. I liked that. Maybe it was after he spoke in his alarm that David came to his senses. I don't know, but somehow he went from despairing to praying. And instead of losing heart, he started launching petitions, prayers. There, there's a part of, of God's great love that we're only going to experience as we rely on him and delight in him in the middle of the worst of our trials, David pleaded with God and God wondrously displayed his love. Perhaps the Lord has you in the thick of troubles today so that he can show you the depth of his love tomorrow. It is good to delight in God when the city is blessed. It perhaps is even better to delight in God when the city is besieged. Blessed be the Lord, for he's wondrously shown his steadfast love to me when I was in a besieged city. But you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. Not only will this God of yours be with you, but he will love you, brother. That's what, you, that's what we're going to tell each other over and over again until we get to glory. He will be with you. He loves you. One more thing. He will strengthen you. He will strengthen you. Verse 23, love the Lord, all you his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. Now, one has to pay very close attention to what promise is given here. It is not a promise to have all your troubles erased. It is a promise to be preserved and strengthened through the trials. God will take care of the justice on your enemies. In the meantime, he will make sure that you have the courage to move forward. You know what courage is, right? Courage is simply the inner conviction to do what is right, regardless of how dumb it looks. Courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is not the absence of second-guessing and misgiving. That's why Courage is the decision to act in obedience to God in spite of what might happen. And the greater our delight in God, I think the more faithful we will be to live for him, even in our sorrows and in our sufferings. You know, this is a popular psalm in the Bible. Paul alluded to it. It's quoted by Jonah. It's quoted by Jeremiah. It's quoted by a third man in your Bible too. We've already seen hints of him. Look back at verse 7. You have seen my affliction. You have known the distress of my soul. Verse 9, my eye is wasted from grief, my soul and my body also. We know a man who suffered 
greatly in a lonely garden who prayed in deep distress of soul to the heavenly father as his body sweat great drops of blood. Look at verse 13. They scheme together against me as they plot to take my life. Well, we know a man who endured the lies of his enemies as they falsely accused him of sin and wrongdoing, plotted to murder him, even though he was innocent. Look at verse 22. I said in my alarm, I am cut off from your sight. We know a man who never said that or anything like it in his alarm. And yet, who was cut off from God's sight? To endure the penalty for sins that he never committed. Look at verse 5. Into your hand I commit my spirit. We know a man who spoke those very words from a Roman cross. Not, beloved, as an expression of defeat or discouragement or resignation or surrender, but just as David spoke them, as an expression of total confidence in his father. When David wrote those words, he wasn't expecting to die. He was expecting God to intervene in his case and to deliver him. And when the greater David, our Lord Jesus Christ, took those same words from this psalm into his mouth, he elevated their significance to a new and a greater level. He knew that in just a moment, he would give up his spirit and die. But he quoted the words of Psalm 31 so that all of us might know his untouchable confidence that his father would raise him from the dead to never-ending life. Not just one rescue from one trial, but the great rescue from all trials. And then he breathed his last and he was instantly in paradise with his father. And that same Lord Jesus offers the same eternal life and uninterrupted delight to all those souls who are hidden in him. Have you repented from your sins? Have you put all your hope for eternal life in Jesus Christ? Oh friend, there's no possible way to be happy in God if you are not right with his son. And the only way to be right with his son is to renounce all the things you've said and done that he calls sin. Every lie, every lustful thought, every harsh word, and it is to identify so closely closely to Jesus that you can say, I believe what Jesus did on the cross was enough for me. I believe what Jesus did on the cross was sufficient for me. May God graciously work in your life right now to save you from the hell that your sins deserve. And he is willing to do so because he's provided the world's only savior. Have you come all the way to Jesus? I've lived too long, and I know that there's some who dance around the edges of church life. I like to sing. I like the people. I might even like the coffee. But those songs and those people and that coffee will be no savior for you in the day of wrath. Come all the way to Jesus. And be saved. And Christian, may God lift us up from our Eeyore ways so we can be like John Huss, who when he was being led away to be burned at the stake, 
had religious leaders get up in his face and say to him, we devote your soul to the infernal demons. To which he calmly replied, ah, but I commit my spirit into your hands, O Lord Jesus. Then his body was burned. And the moment he died, he was in the presence of his chief delight forever. May God give his grace to all live so faithfully. Let's pray together. to pray first of all, Lord, for any who are unsure if they belong to Jesus or not, and I pray that today would be a day of salvation for them. By your grace, send your Holy Spirit now to save them from their sins. I want to pray for every Christian here, individually, who is perhaps being tempted to lose heart, help them to find a brother or sister to say, turn to today and just say, speak some truth into my life. Remind me, please, that I'm loved by God. And I want to pray for Grace Fellowship Church, a church that I love very much, and ask for your abounding mercy upon her. Bless her with the best thing, which is more of you. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.